I'm Modassar Ahmed, Managing Partner at Unitas Communications, and this is PR Unmasked. In this episode, we are joined by the current United States Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, as well as other distinguished guests to discuss the rise of anti-Semitic rhetoric in the United States and Europe, its history, and what the transatlantic communities can do to combat it now and in the future. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon and welcome everyone. We are pleased to welcome you to this Concordia Forum event. Today, of course, we're joined by the Honorable Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, the US Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. As Special Envoy, she leads efforts to advance US foreign policy in order to counter anti-Semitism throughout the world. Ambassador Lipstadt has had a storied career as a historian, academic, and author at Emory University's TAM Institute for Jewish Studies, which she helped to found. She served as the Dorot Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies. She has also taught at the University of Washington UCLA and the Occidental College. Special Envoy Lipstadt also served as director of the Brandeis Barden Institute and was a research fellow at the Vidal Sassoon International Center for the Study of Antisemitism at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She has also had several award-winning books, including Denying the Holocaust, The Growth Assault on Truth and Memory, The Ackman Trial, Denial, Holocaust History on Trial. She has held a presidential appointment to the United States Holocaust Memorial Council from Presidents Clinton and Obama and was asked by President George Bush to represent the White House at the 60th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Throughout today's discussion, we will also welcome several respondents, including UK members of parliament, activists, academics, and members of civil society organizations to ask Ambassador Lipstadt some questions. Unfortunately, Keir Starmer and Nashar will not be joining us. However, we do have a letter from Keir Starmer that I will read out now. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry I'm not able to join you in person for this event, but I want to congratulate the Concordia Forum for organizing this very timely and sadly necessary discussion. Transatlantic cooperation is absolutely vital to defeating all forms of extremism and hate, including anti-Semitism. It has done so in the past and will do so again. I'm pleased to see the United States take such a strong lead on this issue. Deborah Lipstadt is an incredible ambassador for this vital cause. A long-standing ally of Jewish communities and continues to be in my power to tackle anti-Semitism. Under my leadership, the Labour Party will always be committed to fighting all forms of hate, prejudice and discrimination. I look forward to hearing the outcomes from this discussion and I hope to discuss this with you all in person soon. Wishing you a fruitful event. The Right Honourable Keir Starmer, leader of the UK Labour Party. Now, Ambassador Lipstadt, I want to thank you again for joining us, and we'd like to start off by giving you a few minutes for opening remarks, Ambassador. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I want to thank uh, Imam Abdullah, you, Mudassar, for hosting this forum and for creating and, and furthering this forum and all those involved in it. I think it is a wonderful enterprise. When Abdullah mentioned it to me, I don't even think he had finished issuing the invitation over the phone about halfway through when he, and I knew what the Concordia Forum was, of course, I said yes. And I so I am here happily and enthusiastically, which I can't say about all the interactions I give, but this one for sure. It's a pleasure to be here because it gives me the opportunity to practice what I so often preach, so to speak, about the interconnectedness of hatred. You can't fight 
hatred in a silo. You can't fight anti-Semitism in a silo. They are interconnected in so many different ways. First and foremost, anti-Semitism is a prejudice like racism, sexism, and of course, uh, Islamophobia, fear of Muslims. One Muslim does something wrong, the uh, prejudiced person says, that's how they are. A Jew does something, oh, that's typical of Jews. And conversely, if they do something right, oh, she's one of the good ones. Uh, if you think about the etymology of the word prejudice, it explains it all. You pre judge. I decide on the basis of your dress, your name, uh, the color of your skin, the uh, symbol you wear around your neck, who you are and what you are. Uh, or as a colleague of mine at Emory likes to say, uh, the stereotype smacks you in the nose while the person is still three blocks away. So in that sense, anti-Semitism, racism, fear of Muslims are, are certainly interconnected. Anti-Semitism has often been called, and I think with good reason, one of the oldest hatreds. It is embedded in so many cultures and it doesn't have one, it doesn't come from one place. It does have certain unique characteristics. While it's part of the panoply of prejudices, every prejudice has unique characteristics. And for anti-Semitism, it's a number of things. First of all, it's ubiquitous. It's free-flowing. It comes from across the spectrum. It comes from, it can come from everywhere uh, on the political spectrum, as you in the UK certainly have witnessed in uh, recent years, and we in the United States see it as well. It can come from Christians. It can come from Muslims. It can come from atheists. And it can come from Jews. We know that as well. And in that sense, it's not dissimilar. But one of the things about anti-Semitism, I think that it's a certain different construct, a couple of things. First of all, it's a conspiracy theory, fundamental to the history of anti-Semitism and fundamental to the concept of anti-Semitism is that the Jew who, according to the anti-Semitic stereotype, and every prejudice, of course, has its own particular stereotypes, the, the Jew is wealthier, more powerful person, a group able to punch way above their weight, smart, but not in a positive way, smart in a deleterious, malicious way, uh, conniving, crafty, clever, and anxious to use those smarts to the detriment of others and the enhancement of their own position. So whether you're talking about anti-Semitism in any of its modes, or even Holocaust denial, they all fit into this kind of construct. Now, what's important here, not just from a structural point of view, is that whereas, let's say, the racist looks at the my country, which has so many examples of that, the racist might say, if they, meaning the person of color, move into our neighborhood, there goes the neighborhood. If their kids go to our kids' school, uh, there goes the school. They're lesser than, they're not as smart as we are. They only got this because of affirmative action, because of special uh, dispensation, et cetera. Now, the anti-Semite might say that the Jew spreads COVID, the Jew is disgusting, but then he adds, an, or she adds another layer. The Jew, going back to the stereotype, wealthier, more powerful, punching above their weight, is also a danger to us. So the anti-Semite punches down, the Jew is dirty, 
disgusting, spreads COVID, and punches up the Jews to be loathed, the Jews to be feared, because they want to control us. In this sense, anti-Semitism parallels to some degree um, Islamophobia in that fear of what they might do to us. It's so important to understand this interconnectedness. It's also so important to understand what anti-Semitism really is. One of the things that disturbed me is that too often groups, particularly groups who are objects of prejudice, of hatred, of animus, fail to recognize anti-Semitism as part of that panoply of hatreds. Sometimes they look up, Jews are very resilient, and they look at as Jews, oh, you've recovered from the Holocaust, doesn't matter that but a few decades ago, eight decades ago, one out of every three of you was murdered, but you've recovered, you're resilient, you don't really need the special protection against prejudice, et cetera. And it's quite problematic. So that's why I think it's so important for us to recognize that it is a prejudice uh, like other prejudices. Thank you for these remarks, Ambassador. So I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself and what inspired you to dedicate your life to this work. Well, you know, I've been a professor most of my life. And when I was asked by the uh, Biden-Harris administration to put my name in for this job, my first thought was, I don't want to leave the academic world. I'm a senior person, a chaired person, if there are other academics on it. You know, we work, I teach three courses a year, most of them, sometimes all of them, seminars. I have research assistants. I have students, uh, teaching assistants. I write what I want. I say what I want. I don't have to clear it with anyone or whatever. Why should I give this up? And someone said to me, you can make a difference. And that sort of clinched it for me. I, I would venture to say that probably everybody on this call uh, would like that to be their epitaph. They made a difference. But I've also, not only have I studied anti-Semitism in its structural, intellectual, historical things, but I've also faced it personally in the UK where I was sued for libel in the late 90s by David Irving, then arguably the world's leading Holocaust denier, in a lawsuit that came to trial in 2000 and then appeals in 2002-03 and was uh, made into a movie uh, called Denial with Rachel Weisz and a star-studded British cast. So I saw it up close and personal in the courtroom. For 10 weeks, I sat there and listened to anti-Semitism being spewed. And in fact, that was one of the things that the people in the White House were urging me to apply, said, you bring this unique history of both knowing it intellectually and having experienced it personally. So that's who I am, and that's where I sit now, making the transition from academic to diplomat, from working as a single voice, saying what I want, where I want, to being part of a very large and complex but wonderful bureaucracy. A bureaucracy that's capable of doing wonderful things. I don't know if wonderful bureaucracy is, is not an oxymoron. It's very exciting. Wonderful. And uh, we look forward to following your transition and journey as that develops. We're now going to take a question from Afzal Khan. Afzal Khan is the Labour Member of Parliament for Manchester Gorton, and currently he is also the British Shadow Minister for Justice. Wonderful. Uh, sir, uh, thank you very much. And can I start by, first of all, uh, congratulating you, your organisation, and of course our special guest, Ambassador Deborah Lipstash, on this very, very important subject. Well, the first thing I want to say is that, uh, look, uh, it's clear that this subject is very important. Uh, hate clearly is growing, uh, I feel, throughout the Europe. 
And uh, if you look at the legislative crimes in Britain, and this year, I think uh, the figures for the march were showing that the, our two communities, the Muslims and the Jewish, were facing the highest numbers. And these numbers are was basically over 3,459 for the Muslims and almost 2,000 for the Jewish community. And this made up something like 65% of all legislative crimes, if you compare of all other faiths uh, in the UK. So for me, I suppose the question ultimately is that we know that uh, any form of racism has to be heard from Sir Keir Starmer's message as well. You know, we have to challenge that. And in that sense, you know, how do we start working in building these relationships uh, and ensuring that we all see this as our fight? Uh, and the secondly is, how do we then support one another if there is something against one community, we realize that we're all in it together and therefore we come to aid and support one another. Because um, I've felt this for a long time, that this uh, form of racism that exists, different shapes, you know, we have to work together. And in, in Greater Manchester, where I'm based, you know, we have got a very proud history in having these coalitions where we work together. And this ultimately led to us about 14, 15 years ago, setting up of Greater Manchester Muslim Jewish Forum. And that has been an incredible experience. I was one of the founders, late Henry Gutterman, who was a survivor of the Holocaust. He was a child, amazing guy, deeply committed to this agenda. So we worked together and we built this there. And we were able to then even defeat the leader of the British National Party, Nick Griffin, who represented us in the Northwest in the European Parliament. I had, I had the honor of replacing him. So, you know, shows you when you work together, you can achieve. Similarly with kosher and halal, when some of those difficulties are being experienced, not only in Britain, but much more in the European level, we were able to collectively go out there, meet with some of those countries, their political leadership, and then highlight to them the importance, and hence some of the things that we were able to achieve. And here in Greater Manchester, you know, we've done up to now over 140 joint events over this period. And they have been amazing, not only in setting a good example to others, but for each one of us to understand much better our common sort of challenges and the common journey that we're going through. Uh, so I think in that sense, what does ambassadors say? That why is it important for us to actually work together and to support one another in this challenge and this difficult times that we're in. Thank you for that question. And more importantly, thank you for what you're doing in Manchester because it's an example of what is possible. There's so many ways I could answer you. Let me first start with a experience that we had here in the United States when there was the massacre at the Pittsburgh synagogue a few years ago. Pittsburgh is a wonderful city with a very, very cohesive kind of fabric uniting the many different 
faiths, religions, nationalities, et cetera, in Pittsburgh. And the Jewish community found that other communities, Christian, Muslim, atheist, small immigrant communities, all reached out to the Jewish community, were present at the funerals, were present at the memorial service. And at one point, uh, somebody went up to a, a member of a very small community and said, how come you're here for us? And he said, because you were here for us when we arrived as refugees. So I think one of the first things we do is exactly what you described, Mr. Khan, in, in the coalition, we reach out to one another. This may sound very simple, it might even sound almost simple-minded, but I, I just this morning, before I met with you, met with a group of leaders from a Midwestern American city of African-Americans and Jews, high-powered people who have set up a, uh, a forum to be in conversation with each other because they realize how much tension there is between their communities. And they also realized that when Jews are, and African-Americans are fighting with one another or in, in contention with one another, the only person who's really happy or the only group that's really happy is the white supremacist, white nationalist, who doesn't like either of them and loves to see them fighting one with the other. So I would think, and I, again, as I say, this comment may sound a little simple, but I think sometimes we start these big fights with simple things. We reach out to one another. We get to know one another. We break bread together. It's harder to stereotype someone when you know people in that group. I was part of, till I joined the State Department, I had to give up all my out affiliations of a Muslim Jewish uh, a dialogue group and action coalition. And it was wonderful to sit with people and when you get to know them or hear about families, hear about their own uh, issues, and you just work together, it's much harder to categorize the stereotype. So I would say that's one thing that is incredibly important. As some of you may know, I began my first trip as ambassador. I made my first stop the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And uh, people ask me why. Uh, they said to me, Deborah, the, the word is you're one of the smarter appointees, you know, in academics, six books, da, 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 da. Can you explain to me why you're making the Gulf first stop? And I looked her in the eye and I said, to make a point. And my point was that if we're going to stop demonizing each other, we have to start talking with one another. And while there are many problems associated with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in terms of human rights and things, just like there are many problems in my country associated with that, I will go and talk to anyone and sit with anyone who is serious about fighting anti-Semitism for a number of reasons. First and foremost, it may well lessen attacks on Jews. Uh, but more importantly, I believe that if you stop othering one group, it's possible, it's not a guarantee, but it's possible that you'll find yourself stopping to other, other groups. The New Yorker, which just interviewed me, called it trickle-down human rights. I don't know if trickle-down economics works, but I'm hoping trickle-down human rights works. And particularly in terms of Muslims and Jews, you know, there were countries in the Gulf which in decades past were purveyors of anti-Semitism, not within their own country, but sending people out, not saying to them, you remit your jobs to go and preach anti-Semitism in Manchester and Brighton, in Brooklyn, wherever, Berlin, wherever. But if they did, it was okay. 
So if I can get them to recognize the dangers of this, then they might stop doing it. Not only will it result in fewer attacks on Jews, but it will result, I think it will decrease hostility towards Muslims as well, who are often seen as you know, the purveyors of these kind of attacks. Finally, Mr. Khan, uh, you mentioned Jews and Muslims and things like kashrut and halal. I'm off next week to a meeting at the EU uh, hosted and uh, coordinated by the European Union, my counterpart at the EU, on issues of ritual slaughter, which of course directly impact the European Jewish and European Muslim community because the limitations and regulations that are want to be put in place contradict many aspects of halal and many aspects of kashrut. So we're working together on those kind of issues. By the way, not as, uh, I don't see them necessarily as anti-Semitic issues. If they're anti-anything, in some countries they've been anti-Muslim and often their uh, pizza, you know, protection of animals and things. But many of these countries make exceptions for hunting, for fishing, for cooking of lobster, you know, so if you can make those kind of exceptions, you make exceptions for freedom of religion practiced by these countries. But wherever we can find openings to work together, to come in the words of the prophet Micah, come let us reason together, sit down together, talk together. I think those things are first steps towards lessening tensions. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. As a historian and expert on anti-Semitism, I wanted to ask you, how did anti-Semitism evolve differently in the US and then in Europe? It's a great question. I think it has obviously, the United States, though it thinks of itself as an old democracy, is a very young country, certainly when compared to many of the European countries. Um, but in, in, in Europe, it has a much older history and was deeply embedded within the church, and I use that word in its broadest manifestations. In the United States, with only one exception during the Civil War, the American Civil War in the 19th century, it's never been formally a part of American policy. It's been there informally, you know, in the years before the Holocaust, the legal restrictions, which made it very hard for Jews to get into the country while other peoples could get into the country and similar things uh, such as that. But I think I want to sort of focus more on more contemporary events. And what I would say is that it's getting harder and harder to really differentiate between anti-Semitism abroad and anti-Semitism within the boundaries of the United States. We had an event in Texas in January, a little less than a year ago, where a man who was radicalized, I think, in a uh, in a mosque in Brighton, I'm not sure exactly what British city, came and held four or five people, including the rabbi, of a synagogue hostage for 12 hours. He was radicalized abroad, but he came to do his handiwork in the United States. So I sometimes think this effort to separate between the two today is like rolling a rock up the hill. It's not really useful. Thankfully, people sometimes say, well, things are so bad now, it's sort of reminiscent of Germany, 1933-34. And I, I often caution people about making glib comparisons to the Holocaust. And I make the point that we are blessed, you in the UK, me in the United States, to live in countries whose governments have formally and often put force behind it made it very clear that they don't tolerate this kind of prejudice. That should be a reason for hope and also a reason for us to keep government's feet to the fire and say, well, you say this, 
let's see it in reality. Let's see it in action. Thank you, Ambassador. We're now going to take a question from Mike Katz. Mike is the national chair of the Jewish Labour Movement. Thank you, Madassa. Thank you, Ambassador Lipstadt, for that really insightful introduction and presentation so far. To give a, a small amount of context, the Jewish Labour Movement is a social society and we've been affiliated to the Labour Party for over a century. And we're a long-standing founder of the Labour Party and we feel ourselves and our identity as progressive Jews very much embedded within left politics. And, and as you inferred in your opening remarks, our place and our surety of our place in, within the Labour Party the labor, wider labor movement in the UK had been rocked over the past few years under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. And without relitigating all that past history, suffice it to say that it was thanks, in a sense, to our intervention when we found that the party was beyond policing itself with the Equality and Human Rights Commission, our, our Equalities watchdog here in the UK. We asked it to launch an investigation to the party and, and indeed it found the Labour Party in October 2020 guilty of breaking discrimination law. To echo what Keir Starmer said in his message, I can certainly confirm he's made a huge priority for Labour in, in detoxifying and chasing out anti-Semitism from the party. And I think it's, I, I would observe, he's always seen this as a moral imperative uh, above and beyond any sort of political imperative. Uh, we've made huge progress, but we cannot be complacent. And one of the things that was very interesting was the, the politicisation of the issue. And in fact, EHRC found, and indeed he himself uh, in his reaction to the EHRC report, pointed out that uh, a large part of the problem was not just the actual perpetration of anti-Semitism against our Jewish Labour members, but actually those who for political reasons, wanted to downplay and deny the existence of anti-Semitism. So it's sort of that that I wish to build on a little in, in, in asking my question and thinking about the problem of anti-Semitism on the left, because most people, many Jewish Labour members indeed, join the Labour Party because they are dedicated to equality and fighting prejudice and hate wherever they see it. And, and they see the Labour Party naturally as the party uh, that fights racism. And it is very difficult then, in an understandable defence of those, say, well, how on earth can I be anti-Semitic? I haven't got a racist bone in my body. I joined the Labour Party because I am anti-racist. And yet, because of some of the unique features that you've already outlined in the way that anti-Semitism both punches up and punches down, in the way it doesn't necessarily fit into a normal stereotype for some elements of discrimination from a leftist point of view, but how part of the struggle against capitalism, against anti-imperialism, because of those tropes that you mentioned, it's very difficult for some on the left to accept let alone that they might be racist, let alone understand how they are being racist and what they can do about that. I will end by saying that our biggest contribution, I think, at the moment is helping the Labour Party educate itself. And we spend a lot of time educating parliamentarians and other elected officials and indeed party members and staff around anti-Semitism. And, and we're closely involved, but it always amazes me how very well-informed, intelligent, well-educated and sophisticated people have the, the foggiest idea about some of those very basic tropes, such as the blood libel, such as the, some of the basic sources of anti-Semitism, such as the protocols of the elders of Zion, are completely unknown to many, many peoples. I'd, I'd be interested in your reflections on how that mirrors your experience of left-based anti-Semitism in the US and elsewhere in the world. And also, how can we best disseminate basic information to inoculate everyone, not just political actors, in the wider sense so they can protect against being drawn into using these tropes, whether they come from the left or they come from the right? Thank you, Mike, for that uh, very important question. I've spent much time in the UK and was there throughout my trial and other times. 
And I watched this happen to my friends in the Labour Party. And it's almost not an exaggeration that at least from a political perspective, they suffered a post-traumatic stress syndrome. When it was going on, it wasn't even post, it was traumatic stress syndrome. What was it that I heard the mantra in certain families is that uh, a little boy, an infant boy at his wrists and a, an infant girl upon being born is not only welcomed into the Jewish community, but given their membership card in the Labour Party. And so people felt themselves without a political home. And more than that, they felt, what the hell is going, what's going on here? Uh, this is the party that I was part of. Um, and I think part of the problem, and we see it in the United States, not so much as you saw it in the center or the leadership of the Labour Party during the previous administration of the party, but in the same fashion. And what it is, is that some people, and I'm not talking in generalities, nothing I've said that today should be taken in generalities, but there are some people, particularly on the more extreme left, who look upon the Jew and see someone who is white, despite the fact that in the United States, the estimate is that 10% of the Jewish community is not white. And in Israel, the guesstimate is 50, over 50% 50 of the Jewish community of Israel, the Jewish citizens of Israel are not from Ashkenazi or European backgrounds. But that doesn't matter, that obliterates it. The, the person on the left sees, oh, Jews are white. And then falling back on the anti-Semitic stereotypes, Jews are rich, Jews are powerful, all part of the anti-Semitic stereotype. Therefore, it is structurally, it's oxymoronic for them to claim to be victims of prejudice. And then, Mike, as if I may, as you said in your comment, and then they engage in what I call Miss Piggy syndrome. Moi? Me? As some former leaders of the Labour Party used to say, my mother marched on Cable Street against anti-Semitism, prejudice and fascism in the 30s. Me, I imbibe liberal values with my mother's milk. It's impossible for me to engage in anti-Semitism, to engage in any form of prejudice. Therefore, if it is structurally impossible for you to be a victim and it's structurally impossible for me to be a perpetrator, there is no anti-Semitism of the left. And more so, you are making false claims because you want special advantage as a victim. You want to cover up for Israel. You want to cover up for the wrongs of Jews, whatever it might be. And it was very, very disturbing. Now, that's not to say there isn't terrible anti-Semitism on the far right. And in my country, we see more of the violence there. But when people say that people, particularly on the left, when I talk about anti-Semitism, let's say, well, on the right, it's far worse. I call that whataboutism. You know, it's like saying, well, I have the flu, but he has COVID. So that's much worse. I don't have to worry about the flu. They're both bad. They're both wrong. And we saw a lot of it. And I give great credit to the Labour Party in its more recent leadership for being willing to openly address, not to brush it under the table, not to say, oh, that's all finished. We don't have to look back at it. We don't have to ask where we went wrong, but openly addressing it and openly looking at it. We see a very similar syndrome in areas, sometimes on campus, sometimes in more progressive left groups in the United States. We had an incident in Chicago, I would say about four Four years ago during a march of lesbians. And there was a group of Jewish lesbians, long a part of the group, some of them having, I think, founded the group, 
who wanted to march with the gay, the rainbow flag, with a Jewish star on it, because that was the intersection of their two identities. We are strongly gay and openly and proudly uh, gay, and we are strongly and proudly Jewish. And they were forbidden to march with that because they had the Jewish star on it. And when they called it out as anti-Semitism, the organized, oh no, it couldn't be anti-Semitism because we're liberals, we're gay and we're liberal and we're left, so it's impossible. Of course, it was anti-Semitism and they organized their own march. But we see a lot of that and we see this hiding behind, oh, it's impossible for me, moi, as I say, uh, the Miss Piggy syndrome. It's very disturbing. We see it here in the United States on the campus. You've seen it in the UK on the campus. And I think every individual, every group, and every country, and every political party, as labor has done, should be looking, willing to look back and say, where did we go wrong, and what can we do to right it? And it's really a pleasure to see the Labor Party doing that now, addressing it, and trying to rectify matters. And I give them great credit for it. Thank you, Ambassador. In 2006, following the David Irving lawsuit, you said, I don't think Holocaust denial should be a crime. I am a free speech person. I am against censorship. While we can agree that free speech is at the crux of Western democracies, where do you think the line is drawn between free speech and hate speech that could lead to acts of violence? Great question. I am a, a First Amendment, the First Amendment to the Constitution here in the United States, which enshrines freedom of speech, press, religion, etc. Sometimes it's hanging on by its fingernails, but so far it's still enshrined in the Constitution. Every once in a while I go into the National Archives where a copy of the Bill of Rights is on display, and I go just to see that the First Amendment hasn't been wiped out. Uh, I speak John Kerry, of course. I do believe that uh, Holocaust denial, or I oppose making Holocaust denial a crime. First of all, it couldn't happen here in the United States precisely because of freedom of speech. But even in countries where it would be legally possible for a number of reasons. First of all, I think the antidote to hate speech is more speech and trying to fight it in that way. But more importantly, or just equally importantly, from a social perspective, I think that when you forbid something, especially for young people, you make it forbidden fruit. Oh, they said you can't say that. I want to find out about it. I won my case against David Irving based on the facts. We showed that he was A, an overt Holocaust denial, an anti-Semite, according to the judge, also showing anti-Semitism, showing racism, misogyny. They often go together, intertwined. And we used the facts. That's why I'm against enshrining it as a crime. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean free for all. It doesn't mean that a university should say, well, since it's not a crime, we want to give an equal opportunity to a hater, a purveyor of Holocaust denial, a purveyor of Holocaust distortion, or a purveyor of anti-Semitism, or a purveyor of hatred of Muslims. If you have the authority over or part of a university, an NGO, a community center, a newspaper, a government, that doesn't mean, oh, setting aside governments right now, that doesn't mean that because you believe that something shouldn't be a crime, you, you offer that person a platform. There was a university who wanted to give David Duke, former grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, an overt anti-Semite, someone who has shown the 
deep-seated resentment and hatred of Muslims. They wanted to invite him, and they told me, well, freedom of speech. I said, freedom of speech means the person is free to say what they want. The government can't put uh, limits on that, though, though, of course, there's treason and there's libel and there's slander, but that's, again, going into the weeds. But that doesn't mean you have to give him a platform doesn't mean, you know, if he sends an op-ed, an opinion piece to your newspaper, that you have to publish it because of freedom of the press. So if you're not going to enshrine it in law, it puts a bigger responsibility on those of us who believe in free speech to be careful of not inviting those who would incite hate speech, who would incite violence against minority groups, who would use prejudicial stereotypes. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification, Ambassador. Now we're going to take a question from Rabia Chowdhury, who is an American attorney, author, and podcast host. She was also the podcast Serial, which discussed Adnan Said's story and later wrote a book called Adnan's Story, The Search for Truth and Justice After Serial, which became a New York Times bestseller. As we all know, Adnan was recently released from prison after his conviction was vacated. Rabia, first of all, congratulations on your victory, and we hope we get to speak to you soon about this. But for now, please do go ahead and ask your question to Ambassador Lipstadt. Thank you very much, Modesto. Thank you for having this forum. And Ambassador, thank you also for joining us and for answering our questions and for all the work you've done. And I have spent maybe the last 20 years doing interfaith work, much of it focused on Muslim-Jewish relations from both uh, a very grassroots level to a national level where I'm founding member of a couple different uh, Muslim-Jewish organizations, including the Muslim-Jewish Advisory Council and IJMA, which is the Inter-Muslim-Jewish Alliance. These recently formed national organizations have brought together individuals and Muslim and Jewish organizations that have never before been in dialogue for lots of different reasons, mostly political differences. And I feel like I have seen in the course of the last 15, 20 years, like every iteration of Muslim-Jewish collaboration, whether it's grassroots work, whether it's the breaking the bread, whether it's uh, Sister of Salam, Shalom, lots of different iterations of us trying to bring our communities together. But my experience has been that there are two frontiers that are really still almost impossible to breach. First, to get each community to sincerely and deeply examine our own prejudices against each other and name them and stand against them when we hear our fellow community members like engaging in that kind of bigotry. And the second, to be able to have civil, empathetic dialogue about the elephant in the room, which is, you know, the Israeli-Palestine conflict uh, and the occupation, which fuels a lot of our internal bigotry just between our two communities. So I'm wondering if you have any guidance or suggestions around how do we breach these these really uh, seminal frontiers that we have to be able to get past if we really want our communities to work together in a more sincere, committed way and not just in a way that is um, superficial. Thank you very much. Thank you for your work. I was glued to cereal and to all the excitement about it. I think it's too often that people neglect to realize that it started the whole podcast. Uh, it really was a pioneer podcast. Thank you. Uh, I think you're right. I think even though some of those efforts, you know, joint E, joint Satyrs, joint uh, whatever, sometimes they seem superficial, but they're better than nothing. At least they bring some people into dialogue. But I think you're absolutely right. We have to be willing to call her out, whether it's around, you know, your Shabbat table or your Ramadan table or whenever it might be, to be able to call out the bigotry in our own myth. When someone uses a slur or someone says something that's unacceptable. You know, here in the United States, one of our big civic holidays is Thanksgiving comes in the third week in November. 
and people go out of their way to cook these big meals. And, and sometimes you'll arrive at someone's home and the host or hostess will meet you at the door and say, listen, Uncle George brought his friend who is an overt racist bigot and he's going to say horrible things. We worked so hard for this meal. Let it just pass. Don't take it on. Don't challenge it. And I say, maybe that was okay once. I don't think it was okay once, but if it was slightly acceptable once, it's not acceptable now. We have to telegraph a message uh, to all the people, but especially the young people around the table, that even if that person is from our group and they're talking about another group using a, a slur or whatever slur it might be, we don't accept that. You know, recently we had, amongst the terrible tragedies we've had in this country, was the attack in Buffalo in May on a supermarket called the Tip Top Supermarket where a young man who claimed to have been totally radicalized during COVID by the internet drove over 100 miles, maybe 200 miles, to find a region where an area, a city in the area, an area in the city where he could find the, the largest concentration of black people to murder them. And by the way, he looked for a place where he could find the greatest number of African-Americans. But if you read his so-called manifesto, it was riddled with anti-Semitism. The Jews are the puppeteers behind the blacks who are the puppets. You know, they could never achieve any of the success. I'm saying that to, to show the interconnectedness, the intertwined nature of that hatred. But so he claims to have been radicalized strictly from the Internet. I'd like to know what kind of talk there was around his family's dinner table, what kind of racial slurs were used. These things don't come ex nihilo simply off the Internet. You have to be sort of primed for this. Wish I could give you an easy formula. I think we have to stick harder with some of the things that you mentioned, which you rightfully say are often seem superficial, but reach out more and more and create these contacts. In terms of Israel, and my remit is not the Middle East. You know, uh, I have a lot of people in this building who are working very hard uh, to resolve that geopolitical crisis. When I was in Saudi Arabia, somebody said to me, oh, there'd be no anti-Semitism oh, if Israel solved the uh, Israeli-Palestinian Palestinian crisis. My response was not to get into a debate over politics, because, of course, being critical of the policies of any country does not make you anti that country. But I said to the person regarding hatred of Jews, I said, you know, in my country after 9-11, there wasn't an uptick. There was a surge in hatred and contempt uh, for people of the Muslim faith, irrespective of where they came from. So much so that in New York, the polygot capital of the United States, when a group of uh, Muslims wanted to build a Muslim community center, which would include a mosque, right adjacent to Ground Zero, they had the land before, and New York City, which is made of immigrants and refugees and different ethnic and diverse communities, refused them permission to do so because it was adjacent to ground zero. So I said to this uh, person, and so this imam happened to be in, in Saudi Arabia, this older person, I said, I spoke out at that time and I said, I thought it was outrageous. Why should the Muslim, who happens to work or live in Lower Manhattan, be denied access to a community center for him or her and their family, their children, and access to a mosque? I thought it was just wrong. The two issues aren't the same because the people who attacked the World Trade Center happen to be Muslims to deny New York Muslims the right to build this. It's absurd. 
And the person said, I agree with you. I said, well, it's similar with anti-Semitism. To justify or say, I can, I'm anti-Semitic because I disagree with the policies of Israel. First of all, many Israelis disagree with the particular policies of the government of Israel. I think the national support of Israel is being critical of your government, irrespective of which government is in power. It's just simply wedding of two issues. Or someone who might say, you know, I disagree with the policies of another Muslim country. That's why I don't like Muslims. Or an Arabic country, that's why I don't like Arabs. I think it's bringing together two issues that deserve to be seen in the separate nature. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be addressing the geopolitical crisis. And we also should recognize that there are people who will know that anti-Semitism is not acceptable, but we use anti-Semitic themes and motifs in their criticism and their comments about Israel. Mm. Uh, I think it's a very hard issue to address, but unless we address it and recognize it, uh, we won't get anywhere on it. Thank you, Ambassador. What are some of the lessons that you've learned in your career in combating anti-Semitism? What lessons do you think that our listeners can draw from and perhaps even implement? What has worked best? I think what's worked best is building a coalition against hate. In the State Department, I have a colleague, Ambassador-at-Large Rashad Hussein, who is our ambassador for religious freedom, who has become a very good friend, and more importantly, and this in the answer to your question, a compatriot, a colleague. Um, I've drawn very close and good relations with someone just appointed recently by the Secretary of State as his special representative on issues of justice and racial equality to ask the question, is American foreign policy even inadvertently ignoring or maybe furthering issues of lack of justice and racial equality? And the three of us have met together and have worked together and are planning to travel together in order to address these issues. If we're going to go to a European country in which in their, let's say, armed forces, there has been a proliferation of examples of white supremacy, white nationalism. I could go and say white supremacists, they're anti-Semitic at their core. And my colleague, the special representative on racial, racial equality, Desiree Comer-Smith, herself a, a, a black woman, could go and say that's racist. Or Rashad Hussein, Ambassador Rashad Hussein, a Muslim, could go and say these things are contrary to freedom of religion. I said, but how much more so if we all go together? if we speak in with one voice. It's not a competition that there's um, only so much a bandwidth of sympathy, but it becomes a false multiplier. So while I always believe this intellectually, and I always believe this in my heart, uh, the great thing is to work together to build these coalitions because some hatred may start with the Jews, it may start with the Muslims. I can assure you that's Thank you. Answer. We're going to take our final question now from Imam Abdullah Antepli. Imam Antepli is Associate Professor of Practice of Interfaith Relations at Duke University and a Senior Fellow on Jewish-Muslim Relations at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Thank you so very much, Mudassar. Ambassador Lipstadt, what an honor to have you in Concordia platform. First of hopefully many more conversations on this platform and beyond. I, my question is, can you narrow down the scope of some of the questions being asked into Islam and Muslims? How and in what way anti-Semitism's manifestation in the Muslim communities around the world is unique or different, if you think it is, 
And in what way the Muslim majority and minority communities, specifically for Muslim communities, they can be more resilient. They can build those ethical moral filters and be resilient about the uh, manifestation of anti-Semitism in Muslim societies. Thank you, Abdullah. Thank you for your work. Your work at Duke is well known by those of us who work in the field. You are much respected as a fellow scholar and I think emerging as a good friend and I hope we build on that friendship. To answer your question, it's almost to summarize what I've been saying for the past hour. I think what people often forget is that the uh, Muslim world, particularly in the Middle East, but not only in the Middle East, was home to millions and millions of Jews. More Jews spoke Judeo-Arabic than ever spoke Yiddish. So Yiddish is often seen as the quintessential Jewish language. Uh, Moses Maimonides, who, who left Spain because of the Christian Inquisition, found a home in Futsdat in Old Cairo, Egypt, and built wonderful relationships with the Muslim community, uh, the Abraham Accords, the Abraham Houses in the UAE. There's so much that needs to be done and so much that can be done. But I think, and to some degree, it goes back to my answer to Rabia a few moments ago. It calls for honest dialogue honest conversation. Where have we gone wrong? Where have I fallen into the trap of maybe conscious or maybe unconscious prejudice and hatred? And where has the, my counterpart gone wrong? I think it's necessary, while not downplaying the geopolitical crisis in the Middle East by one iota, to sort of build a conversation around that. And who knows, maybe that conversation will help resolve or help bring us closer to that issue. And it goes back to what what I said right at the beginning, stop stereotyping, stop seeing the Muslim as terrorist, bomb-throwing, anti-Semite, and not seeing the Jew as the oppressor, uh, whatever stereotypes you want to use, but to really reach out in real dialogue, not, oh, hell fellow, well met, let's meet over a cup of espresso, but let's really address the difficult issues. We Jews just completed less than, uh, I don't know, 48 hours ago, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's my favorite holiday because you get to really look introspectively and look where you've gone wrong and try to right those wrongs. Let's see this as a, not for you, a beginning, because I know you've engaged it, but for many people, the beginning of an honest dialogue that leads us in the words of the Book of Psalms from strength to strength. Thank you very much. Well, Ambassador, thank you for joining us and speaking to us on this very important topic. We'd like to give you a few minutes if you wanted to offer any closing remarks. You know, I think I've said what comes from the heart. I'm so glad for this opportunity. I'm so glad for this conversation. And I hope that in the not too distant future, it won't be two dimensional, but it'll be three dimensional. And we'll have those hard but fruitful conversations that I've referred to and that you've talk, spoken about. So uh, wishing you great good luck and uh, thanking you for giving me this opportunity in this forum. Well, on behalf of the Concordia Forum, I would like to thank Ambassador Lipstadt and all our guests for joining. We wish you good luck on this difficult task that you have embarked on and we are allies with you on this fight. Good to have you by my side. I really appreciate it. Uh, be you. well and thank you all.